Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Todd Snyder, the quintessential troubadour whose clever and insightful songs earned him an Artist of the Year nomination from the Americana Music Awards. He'll join us in a few moments to discuss his more than two-decade career as a celebrated singer-songwriter whose compositions have been covered by Gary Allen, Tom Jones, Jerry Jeff Walker, Loretta Lynn, and Elvis Costello, and he'll tell us all about his experimental new album, First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder. Part 1 Paul, you know, I feel like uh, a lot of times on Songcraft, we wind up talking about songs that you have written, or I wind up asking you about songs right. that you've written. Um, and I recently came across this song uh, by an artist named Katie Hurst called Lights. Yes. Um, and it's a song that you wrote uh, with a fellow named Justin Morgan. Mm-hmm. And people might be aware of Justin because we talk about Justin on the show a good bit. Justin is not only an amazing uh, musician and songwriter, he also runs Pearl Snap Studios. And we talk about Pearl Snap on this show. And we often encourage people to go and, uh, and to talk to Justin about recording demos of their songs. And I actually was just a moment ago thinking, well, what if somebody doesn't want a demo? What if somebody is an artist and they want to record a record and work with Justin to do that? Is that even a service that he offers? And I just went on pearlsnapstudios.com and he's got a whole section called make a record. And one of the first things listed on here is Katie Hurst lights. And I'm like, Oh, Paul, check this out. Justin makes records with people. <laughs> and you just said to me, yeah, I wrote that song with him. <laughs> Right. So that's kind of crazy. Well, yeah, and and not only was that uh, a part of Katie's you know recorded project, it went to radio. Yeah. So um, we've talked about the fact that Justin can make things sound radio ready. Well, I know that for a fact because he put that thing right on the radio. <laughs> he so, just went and did it right well, yeah, there through through her label and and some <laughs> other people that helped make that happen, of course. Right. But yeah, we're not just talking about demos when we talk about Pearl Snap. I mean, yeah. Justin's a record producer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. This uh, we probably spend too much time talking about the demo portion of it because some people are like, well, I don't want to do demos, but but I am an artist. I want to make a record. Yeah. Well, you found your spot. Yeah, yeah. So here's just a little taste of uh, Katie Hurst, uh, the song "Lights," which was written by my esteemed co-host Paul Duncan with Justin Morgan and produced by Justin at Pearl Snap Studios there in Nashville. Before your love came around Fading to black Cause I was living with the power out And I was thinking I could handle this Get me up and out from under this Nothing happened when I pulled the switch But then you hit the lights on my
That thing sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty darn good. So, yeah, I mean, we always talk about, uh, you know, as you said, talking about demos. And Justin's great with demos. If you're a writer and and let's, you know, and you're honest and you're like, you know what, my singing voice is terrible. Uh, <laughs> then then you might need to get some, some other people to sing uh, your demos. And there's no shame in that. Uh, but maybe you're like, you know what, I'm not really so much uh, uh, somebody that's trying to get my songs recorded by other people. I'm a singer-songwriter. And I want to record some of my stuff, you know, so that, you know, I can give it to my friends and my fans and, and my family and, and put it out there on the internet and buy a yacht, buy a yacht, you know, one thing leads to another. So yeah, definitely. Uh, whether you're looking to make a demo or make a record of your own, Justin and Pearl Snap Studios are the people that you need to talk to. So visit pearlsnapstudios.com and tell them Songcraft sent you. Well, Paul, uh, this past week, our nation celebrated the revered holiday of April 20th, or 420, as it's known. and uh, Celebrated among the subculture, Abby (laughs) Hoffman types. Some of the, uh, you know, some of the the hippies, I think they're called, out there on the West Coast. Smoking that Um, wacky tobacco. Exactly, the jazz cigarettes. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, so 420 uh, happened this past week, which is kind of appropriate because we have uh, an episode today with Todd Snyder. And Todd Snyder has definitely never made any bones about the fact that he enjoys uh, a little herb from time to time. Sometimes right. often yeah. during an interview, maybe. <laughs> so, um, so it, it's it's certainly uh, not throwing Todd under the bus to uh, acknowledge that he has a, a certain uh, enthusiasm for certain recreational activities, and uh, you know because we're talking to Todd Snyder today, and because it was you know four twenty this past week, I kind of got to thinking, you know, you, if you get in a conversation with somebody that's that's really high, you know. <laughs> And, and they're, they, they can really focus and they can really dig deep. Right. So I was thinking like, what are some of the like funniest or most bizarre conversations I've ever had with people who are, uh, you know, shall we say impaired? And, uh, I'm a bit of a teetotaler myself, but, uh, you know, I, I, I can always appreciate a good, uh, truly fixated uh, conversation that goes down the deep rabbit hole of like how the moon landing wasn't real right yeah stuff like that yeah. um well i mean that's just a fact right. but uh <laughs> um so i started thinking the other day and 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 i thought you know there's that game of 6 degrees of kevin bacon that used to be kind of a a popular thing that people well don't would... bring up bacon around somebody who's high <laughs> well they're just going to leave if you do cuz they got to get some bacon man um but, you know, there was that old game that was, you know, you could connect any actor within six steps back to Kevin Bacon. Yep. And uh, I started thinking, how does that work in the music world? How does that work in the songwriter world? And I started thinking, you know, Songcraft now has 165 episodes, which means that we've talked to 165 amazing creators. Is it possible that all of them are somehow connected? Yeah, they're connected by us. <laughs> They've all talked to us. <laughs> That's true. So done. Yeah. Uh, Easy know. game. Next game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I started working out in my mind. I started making some connections between some different uh, guests that we've had on the show. And uh, I started connecting some dots, right? And then in my mind, I started seeing like what was almost like a jigsaw puzzle out in front of me. I started moving pieces around and fitting pieces together. And I finally realized that every single one of our 165 guests are in fact connected through an intricate web of musicality. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 
So, Wait, is there like a map on a wall somewhere with like pieces of yarn connected? There is not yet, but somebody needs to do that. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all right now the pieces that you need to create your map. Wow. Now we've had a lot of guests. And so it's going to take a minute to, to mention all these connections. So I'm going to use my micro machines voice. Oh my gosh. Are you really doing this? I'm doing this. I'm also uh, warning everyone that if this is the kind of stuff you just cannot tolerate listening to, and you're ready to go straight to the interview, fast forward by about 20 minutes for real. All right. If you want to know how all the Songcraft guests are connected, it goes like this. Guest number 146, Linda Perry, wrote Get the Party Started for Pink, who collaborated with number 129, Rabel, on 90 Days, with number 30, Billy Mann, on Stupid Girls. Mann wrote the song With You by Jessica Simpson, an artist who also recorded Irresistible by number 53, Pam Shane. Pam is better known for writing Genie in a Bottle for Christina Aguilera, who also recorded number 32, Shelley Pikin's What a Girl Wants. Pikin wrote Bitch with Meredith Brooks, which was up for a Best Rock Song Grammy in 1997, but lost out to One Headlight by Jacob Dylan, whose father Bob Dylan's song Make You Feel My Love was covered by Adele on her first album. Adele wrote Someone Like You with number 157 Dan Wilson, who wrote the song Shy on Leon Bridges' Good Thing, an album that featured the song If It Feels Good, co-written by Teddy Geiger, who in turn collaborated on Caroline Polachek's So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings with number 164 Dan Nigro. Dan wrote Can't Break Me Down with Billy Idol and Greg Kirsten, who in turn collaborated with number 111 David Gamson on Stronger by Kelly Clarkson. Clarkson's first hit, Before Your Love, was written by number 97 Gary Burr, who previously wrote Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me, one of the two biggest singles for Juice Newton. The other, Angel of the Morning, was written by number 21 Chip Taylor, whose song Try Just a Little Bit Harder was recorded by Janis Joplin. Janis also covered Raise Your Hand by number 148 Eddie Floyd, whose R&B hit California Girl was co-written with Booker T. Jones. Booker was also the co-writer of Born Under a Bad Sign with number 80, William Bell, whose song You Don't Miss Your Water was later covered by The Birds when number 112, Chris Hillman, was still in the band, years before he started the Desert Rose Band with number 95, John Jorgensen. In between those groups, Chris formed the Flying Burrito Brothers with Graham Parsons and covered Close Up the Honky Tonks, which was written by number 28, Red Simpson, whose career was based in Bakersfield, California, the same city where number 133, Ed Hill, launched his own career before going on to write It Matters to Me, a hit for Faith Hill, who also found success with This Kiss, a song written by number 89, Beth Nielsen Chapman, whose song Sand and Water was covered by Elton John. Now, prior to his career scoring films, number 66, Harold Closer, appeared as a backing musician for Elton. Harold went on to score the film 2012, starring John Cusack, whose earlier film Say Anything was the first movie that number 163 Nancy Wilson wrote music for. Nancy and her sister Anne collaborated with number 10, Holly Knight, on the heart song Never. Holly previously collaborated with Paul Stanley of Kiss and number 17, Desmond Child, on the song Hide Your Heart. Desmond went on to collaborate with number 160, Diane Warren, on Michael Bolton's How Can We Be Lovers. Diane also wrote Unbreak My Heart, which was recorded by Tony Braxton. Braxton's debut album included keyboards by Rex Rideout, a longtime collaborator with number 152, Lettucey, who, like number 158, Ani DeFranco, was personally invited to record with Prince. Prince, of course, gave a memorable performance at the 2004 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, playing While My Guitar Gently Weeps, alongside Tom Petty, who once covered number 151 Lucinda Williams's Change the Locks. Tom's own song, Here Comes My Girl, was covered by number 120 Matthew Sweet. Sweet also covered Care of Cell 44 by number 57 Rod Argent of the Zombies, who spent time in Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. 
Ringo played drums on number 144 Ray Wiley Hubbard's song Bad Trick, and Hubbard co-wrote the song Desperate Man with Eric Church, who wrote the song Talladega with number 154 Luke Laird. Luke collaborated with R&B artist Neo on his song She Is, and Neo collaborated with number 159 Eric Bellinger on Jennifer Hudson's Think Like a Man. Bellinger is one of several Songcraft guests who have songs recorded by Justin Bieber, a list that includes number 155 Erica Ender, who wrote Despacito, and number 102 Mike Posner, who co-wrote the song Boyfriend with Bieber, but is better known for his biggest hit as an artist that opens with the line, I took a pill in Ibiza to show Avicii I was cool. Avicii collaborated on the song For a Better Day with number 134 Alex Ebert, whose band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros covered John Denver's Wooden Indian. Another Denver song, Rocky Mountain High, was covered by number 132 Alan Stone, who collaborated on the song Neon Cathedral with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, who also collaborated with number 96 Mary Lambert on the song Same Love, which they all performed together on the 2014 Grammy Awards with Madonna, who had earlier covered American Pie by number 84 Don McLean. Another McLean song, I Love You So, was covered by Bobby Goldsboro, who also covered Watching Scotty Grow by number 18, Mac Davis, whose song In the Ghetto was inspired by a guitar lick created by Joe South. South recorded the song Lady Moonwalker, written by number 26, Mars Bonfire, whose Born to be Wild was covered by Wilson Pickett. Pickett's song, 645789, was covered by Otis Redding, whose song These Arms of Mine appeared on the soundtrack of the film Dirty Dancing, alongside Where Are You Tonight, a song by number 39, Tom Johnston, frontman of the Doobie Brothers, which recorded the song Divided Highway, written by number one, Jim Peterick, who is better known for writing Eye of the Tiger, a song that was covered by Paul Anka years after he covered All I Have to Do is Dream by the Everly Brothers, a duo that also recorded Walk Right Back, written by number 51, Sonny Curtis, who was a member of the Crickets, which covered I Saw Her Standing There, which was written by Paul McCartney, who collaborated with number 137, Denny Lane, on Mull of Kintyre after Lane had left the Moody Blues, a group that first made its mark with a cover of Go Now, a Bessie Banks record that was originally produced by Jerry Lieber and number 27, Mike Stoller. Lieber and Stoller collaborated with number 86, Billy Ed Wheeler, on The Reverend Mr. Black, which, like Billy Ed's Jackson, was recorded by Johnny Cash, who also recorded Daddy Sang Bass, as did number 9, Bill Gaither, a GMA Dove Award Songwriter of the Year winner, an honor that's also been bestowed on number 37, Seth Mosley. Gaither wrote Because He Lives, which was recorded by Carrie Underwood, whose song Jesus Take the Wheel was written by number 143, Brett James, with Hilary Lindsay. Hillary was also a writer on Girl Crush with number 23, Lori McKenna, who was nominated for Best American Root Song at the 2016 Grammy Awards up against number 115, Robbie Folks, for his Alabama at Night. They both lost the category to number 61, Vince Gill, who was married to Amy Grant, who recorded the song Give This Christmas Away with number 82, Matthew West. But obviously Vince Gill is more than just Mr. Amy Grant. He's best known for his own massive country hits like Worlds Apart, which he wrote with number 83, Bob DePiro. Bob also wrote American Made for the Oak Ridge Boys, a group who had a huge hit with Elvira, written by number three, Dallas Frazier, who also wrote There Goes My Everything, a major country smash for Jack Green, who released a string of successful duet singles with number 161, Jeannie Seeley, who wrote Irma Thomas's Anyone Who Knows What Love Is Will Understand, with Randy Newman, who in turn wrote Irma Thomas's Breakaway with number 162, Jackie DeShannon. DeShannon also wrote Betty Davis Eyes, which was covered by Taylor Swift, who was signed to her first publishing deal by number 91, Woody Bomar, and who has also covered Dare You to Move by number 36, John Foreman of Switchfoot. 
Foreman has a side project duo called Fiction Family with Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. Nickel Creek's bassist, Mark Schatz, joined the band of number 79 Claire Lynch after Nickel Creek disbanded. Lynch wrote the song Hills of Alabama, which was covered by Kathy Matea, who also covered Asking Us to Dance, written by number 68 Hugh Prestwood, who also wrote The Sound of Goodbye, a hit for Crystal Gale, who also had a hit with Till I Gain Control Again, written by number 125 Rodney Krell. Rodney co-wrote I Don't Know Why You Don't Want Me with his then-wife Roseanne Cash, who went on to marry John Leventhal, who co-wrote Sonny Came Home with number 136, Sean Colvin. Colvin recorded The Chain by Fleetwood Mac, whose member Stevie Nicks recorded a duet with Kenny Loggins called Whenever I Call You Friend, written by number six Melissa Manchester, who began her career as a backup singer for Bette Midler, who recorded number 130 Marshall Crenshaw's You're My Favorite Waste of Time, but is best known for her biggest hit When Beneath My Wings, which was written by number five Jeff Silbar, who also wrote John Mellencamp's China Girl. When he was still known as John Cougar, his Nothing Matters and What If It Did album was produced by number 42, Steve Cropper, who later released collaborative albums with number 14, Felix Cavalieri. Felix started out in The Young Rascals, covering Good Lovin', a song written by Rudy Clark, who also wrote Got My Mind Set on You, a hit for George Harrison, who was the subject of an entire tribute album by number 90, Randy Bachman of American Woman fame. Every George Harrison album in the 1970s included contributions from number 47, Gary Wright, known for Dreamweaver, who was there for the All Things Must Pass album alongside Eric Clapton, who'd moved on from number 19, John Mayall's band, but was years from recording Change the World, written by number 44, Gordon Kennedy. Gordon is a longtime collaborator with number 140, Peter Frampton, who also played on All Things Must Pass, but we can't loop back on ourselves too much or the universe might explode. And Frampton went on to write the song For Now with number 110, Steve Seskin, who co-wrote Tim McGraw's Grown Men Don't Cry with number 22, Tom Douglas, who co-wrote Love's the Only House with number 117, Buzz Kaysen, whose song Soldier of Love was covered by George Harrison's old band, The Beatles, a group that also covered number 109, Smokey Robinson's song You Really Gotta Hold On Me. Now, Smokey also wrote Ain't That Peculiar, recorded by Marvin Gaye, who in turn co-wrote Martha and the Vandellas Dancing in the Street with number 113, Mickey Stevenson. Mickey also wrote It Should Have Been Me for Gladys Knight and the Pips, whose songs Midnight Train to Georgia and Neither One of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye were written by number 75, Jim Weatherly. The latter song was also recorded by Ray Price, who scored many country hits, including Heart Over Mind, written by number 76, Mel Tillis. It was Tillis who gave number 119, Buddy Cannon, his first charting single as a writer with I Believe in You. Cannon would go on to write the smash George Strait single Give It Away with number 35, Bill Anderson, who wrote the guitar song with Jamie Johnson, who wrote that lonesome song with number 123, Kendall Marvel, who wrote Either Way with Chris Stapleton, who wrote Frankie Ballard's Cigarette with number 15, Jaron Johnson. Jaron wrote the hits You Gonna Fly and Raise Em Up by Keith Urban, an artist who also recorded number 147, Mac Powell's Call My Name, number 54, Radney Foster's I'm In, and number 92, Dennis Matkoski's You'll Think of me. Matt Kosky also wrote Maniac, which was up for a Best Original Song Oscar in 1983 against number 38 Bobby Hart's Over You. Previously, Bobby was a member of the songwriting team Boyce and Hart that wrote Monkey's hits like Last Train to Clarksville. Monkey Mike Nesmith wrote the song Different Drum, which was a charting single for the Stone Ponies, whose lead singer was Linda Ronstadt. Ronstadt's subsequent backing band would become the Eagles, which scored hits like Peaceful Easy Feeling and Already Gone that were written by number 13 Jack Temption. Linda would have a long and fruitful career that ranged from deep cuts like Women Across the Water, written by number 70, David Olney, to big hits like her cover of Blue Bayou, co-written by number 58, Joe Melson, with Roy Orbison. 
Melson and Orbison co-produced Roy's 1973 album Milestones, which featured arrangements by number 24, Randy Goodrum, long before he became a songwriter writing hits like Foolish Heart with Steve Perry. That Orbison album concluded with a cover of The Morning After, written by number 11, Al Kasha, who, decades later, had a number one dance hit with I'm a Fire, co-written and performed by Donna Summer, whose husband, number 87, Bruce Sedano, collaborated with Donna on Starting Over Again, a number one hit for Dolly Parton. Just two years prior, Dolly had scored a number one single called I Really Get the Feeling by number 62, Billy Vera. Though Billy went on to have a huge hit as an artist with his original song At This Moment, the tune was famously rejected by Clive Davis as not good enough for Whitney Houston. Clive must have thought So Emotional was good enough since Houston had a major hit with that song written by number 41, Billy Steinberg, who also wrote True Colors for Cyndi Lauper. Lopper's Detour album was produced by Tony Brown, who also produced the song Deep River Woman, a duet by Lionel Richie and the group Little Big Town. That group had a hit with Pontoon, written by number 56, Natalie Hemby, who also wrote Stay at Home Mother with Cheryl Crow, who covered Lean on Me by number 16, Bill Withers. Withers' song Rosie was sampled in Roses by Kanye West, who made his debut as a rapper on an album by number 59, Talib Kweli, who in turn sampled number 8, Jerry Swamp Dog Williams. Swamp wrote She's All I've Got, a country hit for Johnny Paycheck that was revived by Tracy Bird, an artist who also recorded Ten Rounds with Jose Cuervo by number 48, Marla Cannon Goodman, The Truth About Men by number 65, Rory Feek, and Keeper of the Stars by number 63, Dickie Lee. Lee is best known for writing She Thinks I Still Care for George Jones, an artist who recorded number 67, Tom T. Hall's I'm Not Ready Yet. Hall's How I Got to Memphis was covered by Buddy Miller, a longtime Emmylou Harris collaborator. Harris covered You Never Can Tell, C'est La Vie, by Chuck Berry, who covered Jamaica Farewell, written by number 31, Irving Burgey. Burgey is best known as the writer of Deo, a hit for Harry Belafonte, who also recorded a cover of By the Time I Get to Phoenix, written by number 60, Jimmy Webb, and one of many songs Webb wrote for Glenn Campbell. One of the rare Glenn Campbell hits Webb did not write was Rhinestone Cowboy by number 114, Larry Weiss, whose song To Make My Father Proud was recorded by Michael Jackson. MJ's duet partner on I Just Can't Stop Loving You was number 73, Saida Garrett, who also wrote Man in the Mirror with Glenn Ballard. Glenn would go on to produce Miley Cyrus, an artist who recorded The Climb by number 139, Jesse Alexander. Jesse also wrote a top 20 country hit called Song About a Girl with Eric Paisley, who in turn co-wrote Even If It Breaks Your Heart with number 150, Will Hogue, which became a chart-topping hit for Eli Young Band, a group that has also had a hit with a song called Love Ain't, written by number 121, Shane McAnally, who is one of the hosts of the TV show Songland, alongside Esther Dean, who is the writer of Countdown by Beyoncé. Beyonce's If I Were a Boy was written by number 34, Toby Gad, who wrote All of Me with John Legend, who duetted with Megan Trainer on the song Like I'm Gonna Lose You, written by number 141, Caitlin Smith, who also wrote You Can't Make Old Friends, recorded by Kenny Rogers, whose song Through the Years was written by number 88, Steve Dorf. Dorf wrote multiple songs on the Pure Country soundtrack, as did number 25, Jim Lauderdale. Though thought of as a country writer, Lauderdale has collaborated with co-writers ranging from number 7, John Oates of Holland Oates, to Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter, who discovered number 49, Tom Russell. Russell wrote the song Outbound Plane, a hit for Susie Boggess, who did a duet of Sorry Seems to be the Hardest Word with Chet Atkins. Atkins covered The Enchanted Sea, written by number 69, Randy Starr, who wrote Kissin' Cousins for Elvis Presley. 
The last new song Elvis recorded was Way Down, written by number 116, Lang Martin, who also wrote The Greatest Man I Never Knew, a big hit for Reba McIntyre, who later recorded the song Tammy Wynette, Kind of Pain, written by number three, and number 149, since she was on the show twice, Brandy Clark. Brandy co-wrote Follow Your Era with Casey Musgraves and Shane McAdally, but we're not double-looping on Shane because of that whole Fragile Universe theory. Casey wrote the song Undermine with number 43, Trent Dabbs, who was part of a duo with Ashley Monroe, who earned major critical praise as a solo artist for her song The Blade, written with number 40, Jamie Floyd. Jamie's song, Trouble Get Me Off Your Mind, was recorded by Brian McKnight, who once recorded a duet with Vanessa Williams called Love Is. It was Vanessa's second highest charting pop single after the number one Save the Best for Last, written by number 135, Wendy Waldman, who also wrote Fishin' in the Dark for the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, a group fronted by number 99, Jeff Hanna, who was married to number 98, Matresa Berg, who wrote X's and O's, an American girl with number 126, Alice Randall, which made her the first African-American woman to write a number one country song. Alice began her career as a collaborator with number 122, Steve Earle, who appeared on the recording Shame on You by the Indigo Girls, a duo that includes number 118, Emily Saliers. As an Indigo Girl, Emily appeared on the soundtrack of the film Philadelphia, as did the Spin Doctors, fronted by number 103, Chris Barron, a group that would go on to cover Woodstock, a song made famous by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young about the famous music festival where number 20, John Sebastian, performed a legendary impromptu solo acoustic set. CSNNY obviously included number 142, David Crosby, and Graham Nash, who had been in the Hollies, a band that recorded a cover of Stay by number 46, Maurice Williams. After Graham left the Hollies, they had a hit with Long Cool Woman, written by number 81, Roger Cook. Cook would go on to write Love is on a Roll with John Prine, which became a big hit for Don Williams. Most of Don's hits, however, were written by number 74, Bob McDill, who also wrote Gone Country by Alan Jackson. Jackson had another hit with That'd Be Alright, which was written by a trio of songcraft guests, number 108, Tim Nichols, number 93, Mark D. Sanders, and number 104, Tia Sillers, who also wrote I Hope You Dance with Sanders, but in addition wrote There's Your Trouble for the Dixie Chicks, a group that recorded number 29, Randy and Maya Sharp's song A Home, and whose members collaborated on Tortured Tangled Heart with number 127, Marty Stewart, a champion of other artists ranging from newcomers like number 71, Emmy Sunshine, a young musical prodigy he hosted on his late night jam to veterans like number 101 Kinky Friedman whose song Lady Yesterday Marty covered. Kinky's Sold American was covered by Lyle Lovett who wrote Front Port Swing with number 94 Robert Earl Keane whose The Road Goes On Forever was covered by country supergroup The Highwaymen which included Willie Nelson who recorded Rainbow Connection by number 106 Paul Williams who co-wrote Evergreen Love Theme from A Star Is Born with Barbara Streisand who later recorded Walls a song written by number 156 Walter Afanasiev with Alan and Marilyn Bergman who wrote the song It Might Be You from the film Tootsie which was performed by number 128 Stephen Bishop who wrote Separate Lives, recorded by Phil Collins, who was in the band Genesis with number 85, Tony Banks, and who wrote Two Hearts with number 100, Lamont Dozier. As part of Holland Dozier Holland, Lamont wrote Stop in the Name of Love for The Supremes, a group fronted by Diana Ross, who had a solo hit with Ain't No Mountain High Enough, written by number 107, Valerie Simpson. Valerie began her career as part of a three-person writing team with number 77, Joe Armstead, whose song Let's Go Get Stoned was a hit for Ray Charles, who co-wrote That Spirit of Christmas with number 78's Mabel John. Mabel John recorded Your Good Thing Is About to End by number 145, David Porter, who also wrote I Thank You, which was covered by ZZ Top, whose frontman Billy F. Gibbons was our guest on episode number 138. Gibbons played in an all-star tribute to Buck Owens at the 2006 AMA Awards, and Buck once covered Catch the Wind by number 33, Donovan.
Donovan Sunshine Superman was covered by Jewel, whose album Pieces of You featured keyboard work from number four, Spooner Oldham, who wrote I'm Your Puppet with number 72, Dan Pym, who wrote Do Right Woman, Do Right Man with Chips Moman, who produced Suspicious Minds, which was written by number 64, Mark James, who also wrote Always On My Mind, the first charting version of which was recorded by Brenda Lee, who was the artist that number 45, Wanda Jackson, had in mind when she wrote the song Right or Wrong. Wanda recorded Little Boy Soldier, written by number 124, Curly Putman, who co-wrote He Stopped Loving Her Today with number 12, Bobby Braddock, whose song Come On In was recorded by Jerry Lee Lewis, an artist who also recorded Another Place, Another Time by number 55, Jerry Chestnut. Jerry also wrote It's Been a Good Year for the Roses, which was covered by number 153, Elvis Costello, who duetted with number 50, Loretta Lynn, on a song called Everything It Takes that Loretta co-wrote with number 165, and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Todd Snyder. Oh <laughs> my gosh. I, first, first of all, you, you came in here talking about 420, and I'm pretty sure that I just heard cocaine happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a teetotaler. That, that was right? the sound. I, I've told you that. That was the sound of uppers. <laughs> wow, that uh, that might be a more copious amount of research than has even been done for any of the interviews themselves. <laughs> you just researched our podcast, basically. Well, with I... the same vigor <laughs> that you've approached these interviews. That that's amazing, and <laughs> and I'm just going to take your word for all of it. Yeah, I mean, only half of it's true, but jeez. <laughs> exactly. uh, <laughs> wow. now when people say, who have you guys had on your podcast, I'm just going to play them just that. Play them that. <laughs> That's who's been in our podcast. You want to know? That's the list. Uh, so Wow. Yeah, so I will challenge our listeners, if, if anyone wants to come up with a different route by which to connect all of these various folks, then uh, feel free to send it to us. And, um, and we, we will, will send the authorities to we, your home immediately. <laughs> we will contact the FBI because <laughs> uh, you should not, I should not have even been doing this. Yeah, uh, man. So, yeah. That was an amazing, uh, just an amazing display of connectivity. <laughs> an amazing waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but pretty, pretty incredible and something we could obviously couldn't have done on purpose. And it's just amazing to see the music business and the interconnectedness and, and the way all of this works together in this crazy musical family tree. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you know, you're, you're connecting people from, you know, this most recent era, we're talking to people like Dan Nigro and somehow we're also connecting this all to uh, Mike Stoller <laughs> and somewhere right. it all connects in, in the whole web of it all. And that's, that's really pretty cool, isn't it? We, yeah. we talk about changes and everything throughout, throughout, uh, you know, music history, but there is a thread yeah. and it's relationship. It's a family. Wow. Yeah, man. Dysfunctional family. But a family. <laughs> Part two. Celebrated singer-songwriter Todd Snyder has continued the troubadour legacy of mentors like John Prine, Jerry Jeff Walker, and Ramblin' Jack Elliott while putting his uniquely clever, wry, sly, and often irreverent spin on folk, rock, country, and Americana. Launching his career on Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville Records, Snyder has spent more than two decades touring relentlessly, both on his own and with legendary artists such as Emmylou Harris. Along the way, he's made a splash with fan-favorite songs such as Talking Seattle Grunge Rock Blues, All Right Guy, Can't Complain, Beer Run, Statisticians Blues, and Play a Train Song. He has released well over a dozen albums, including The Devil You Know and Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables, both of which were named to Rolling Stone's list of the top 50 albums of the year. 
Todd also formed the group Hardworking Americans and published a memoir called I Never Met a Story I Didn't Like, Mostly True Tall Tales. His songs have been covered by Garth Brooks, Gary Allen, Mark Chestnut, Tom Jones, Jerry Jeff Walker, Billy Joe Shaver, Elizabeth Cook, Warren Haynes, Loretta Lynn, and Elvis Costello. His experimental new funk-influenced album is called First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder. Todd, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, Scott. Hey, Paul. Well, you've got a new record uh, called First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder, and uh, I want to ask you about the song uh, Turn Me Loose, I'll Never Be the Same. That's what the rodeo cowboys would yell when they was ready to go. Turn me loose, I'll never be the same. Yeah, that's what rodeo the cowboys used to yell when they was ready to go. Uh, which I understand was inspired by a line off of a Jerry Jeff Walker live record. And, and I believe Jerry Jeff was like a huge influence on you. I'd love to hear kind of how you first became familiar with his music and what role he had in inspiring you to become a songwriter. Sure, sure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, he was like a father to me. And how I found him, I was from Oregon, and then real quick out of high school, I just started bouncing like kids do. And I went from California to Texas. I went from Oregon to California to Texas. And by that time, I was pretty good little hitchhiker and sofa circuit guy. Yeah. And um, and at the and and I remember I I saw it as a as a as a especially to meeting girls. You know, that it was a hang up. It's like, well, what do you do? Well, I just kind of drift around and live in other people's cars and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, um, but then um, my fr- and the only real acoustic music I'd ever heard was Neil Young. But this friend of mine took me to see uh, this Jerry Jeff Walker, who who he said, "You know that song Bojangles? This guy wrote it." I was like, "Well, that's cool." So I went and I saw him, and he, the whole night I felt like he was singing about the way I was living. He was singing about hitchhiking and needing a place to crash and. And and I I, mean, I had like this notion that like the difference between a freeloader and a free spirit mm. is only a couple of chords, really two, three, maybe a fourth one sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the then the main thing is is are you prepared to get in every car every time someone says get in? Are you going to get in? And that's really to me the songwriting. Uh, once you start figuring out how to rhyme, that's like. How high adventure of a life do you want to live? Wow. Just, just, just to go find fun or stuff to rhyme about. Yeah. And that guy, he was like a Hunter Thompson of music. He, 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 he didn't. It didn't stop for him, which was sort of what Woody Guthrie was like. And, and for me too. I'm 54 now, and I think someday maybe I'll change. But so far, I still bounce around like a sock in a dryer. <laughs> And and people really know you as a as a live performer. That's such a big part of just sort of you know uh, what your career has become. But what can you tell us about the first time that you got up and played an original song? Oh, cool! Thank you. 
I um I was a busboy at this place called uh, Peppers and the manager and a couple of these older guys were going to go fishing and I think one of them had a guitar and I knew two two chords on the guitar and so as we were fishing I was playing those two chords and singing to, to these guys sort of about themselves and about our restaurant and about how I was a busboy and and I remember I had this funny part about how I, and it was true, I would eat people, you know, people didn't eat their whole sandwich, I'd eat it, you know, I was broke. And uh, so it ended up kind of being this song called Bus Tub Stew. I kind of made it up while the other guys were fishing. And then we drove back to the bar, and one of the guys was the manager that was on the fishing trip. And there was a band playing called the Martin Brothers. I just talked to one of them the other day. This is 1986. And the owner of the bar goes up to the band and says, you guys got to get off. My friend's going to play. He's got a song. (laughs) And I got up and I sang my bus tub song, and the place went fucking batshit. Wow. (laughs) And, And so then every time those guys played... I'd show up and be like, hey, guys, what's up? Like, hoping they'd get me up there to do that, because the second time I did it, I got a girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, and so then one of the Martin brothers told me there was this place where they had an open mic where you sing your own songs, and it was at the Cheatham Street Warehouse, and it was overseen by this guy named Kent Finley, who saw himself as a real like Henry David Thoreau type guy at like a big ranch that all these young songwriters were living out there with his kids and his wife and I went and played my three songs at that and that was almost like I fell into a cult hmm. I was probably about 19 yeah. and and I was out at this guy's house and uh, with a bunch of other young James McMurtry was out there. Some, I mean, there was some, 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 uh, some. He, I don't even really know what he did. He just always was joking around and fucking around. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your book, you you talk about Kent Finley, and you say that he sort of gave you a, an education in, in music, and and you talk about him kind of becoming your songwriting instructor. Uh, what do you what do you what did you mean by that? I was just telling something the other day for starters. There's a way to make just basically there's a way to write down a song on a piece of paper that is is structured with a meter and you and you there's a rhymes and b rhymes and a certain amount of syllables and alliteration and inner rhyming and all that stuff it's it's kind of complex and, and you can draw it out there's a way to notate it and so in that way I can have a song so I can put it on the wall. And I don't have to. I don't have to go with the first line and then the second line and then the third line. I know before I even really get started how many lines there's going to be, and I can spend all day working on the seventeenth line if I want. And it's just like a car; I get to pick where I'm going to work on it. And mm-hmm. So, in a real, like in a real crafty way, like making the chair, he showed me all the. He was like, "Here's all the basic rules." of songwriting and then the main thing is uh, you then you break them 
But it's not interesting to break a rule if you don't even know it. <laughs> you got to know it, then break it. Yeah. Now, you're, now you're doing it with some forethought. And he gave me, like, he taught a lot of people that sort of, there's a Tom, Tom T. Hall wrote a book that always reminded me of him because it was similar. And then he always spoke to the, uh, almost everybody that's in music tells you if you're in it for money, you don't have a chance because there's too many people that don't care about the money. And they're, they're, they're already up working on their songs. Yeah, and they yeah. they got three songs before you even woke up because you were busy giving a fuck about something else, and there's no time to give a shit about anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, we just passed the one year anniversary of the death of John Prine, and uh, I've been reading a lot of tributes lately. People talking about what they learned from him, and you know what his writing meant to them. And I know that you you guys shared a manager, and you opened a lot of shows for John. You've actually got a song about him, uh, "Handsome John," on the new record. stop right there that might be the quote of the day <laughs> <laughs> um well todd i want to go back uh all the way back to the to the first record songs for the daily planet um and i have a very sharp memory of i was a freshman in college when that album came out and my dad had had bought this that cd and i was over at my parents house and he had just like pulled in the driveway he's coming home from work and he's like hey come out to the car i want to play you something and he wanted to play me uh talking seattle grunge rock blues which is of course is a hidden track on the record but he put the cd in we're sitting in the car and the first track my generation started playing and i wasn't really like you know i didn't really like you know quote unquote country music at the time right and um and so I hear this opening track, he, you know, he's trying to get ready to find the hidden track, but the song just starts playing and I hear that, you know, intro. Did you know that there are people who put us down for no other reason? 
simple fact that we get around. My generation, part two, verse three, chapter four, Jackson five, Nikki six. And it blew my mind because I'm like, whoa. This guy just referenced The Who and the Jackson 5 and Motley Crue before kicking into like a Steve Earle kind of guitar town kind of hook. Like, <laughs> oh, man. I hadn't heard it. Sounds like that. And it, it, it really like grabbed my attention because I had this kind of thought about what country music was. And I'm like, this guy just threw out these amazing pop culture references from three different decades that aren't even country references and then went into this like country sounding thing. And then my dad's like, then he finds the talking Seattle grunge rock blues, and he played me that, which I loved. I thought it was amazing. Now to fit in on the Seattle scene, you got to do something they ain't never seen. So thinking up a gimmick one day, we decided to be the only band that wouldn't play a note under any circumstances. Silence, music's original alternative. Roots grunge. Well, we spread the word through the underground that we were the hottest new thing in town. A record guy came out to see us one day, and just like always, we didn't play it, knocked him out. He said he loved our work. He said he loved our work, but he wasn't sure if he could sell a record with nothing on it. I said, tell him we're from Seattle. He advances two and a half million dollars. We wound up sitting in the car listening to like half the record and it really changed, um, you know, my thinking in a lot of ways about what country music could be. And I wouldn't necessarily call that a country record, but it certainly has a lot of country, you know, influences. And it opened my mind to and helped my journey to becoming more of a person who embraces um, country music. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your own uh, musical journey in terms of some of the different influences that that you absorbed that became Todd Snyder. Right. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, where I come from in in Oregon is um, is like Louie Louie country. Very Kingsman, Sonics, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Um, that's that's what I grew up around, and then. When I moved to Texas, that that was when music didn't. That was when music just really got me, got a hold of me like a drug, and that was Jerry Jeff and Guy Clark and Chris Christopherson and John Prine and Billy Joe Shaver. That was my main ones: Prine, Shaver, Chris, and Jerry Jeff. Although the thing about Jerry Jeff is he wrote Bojangles. But he also is the first person to record songs by Towns and Guy and uh, Rodney. So he had this, like, he was also a real song finder, like Johnny Cash was. And um, those guys, like, in 1985 or 86, for some reason, I just got as obsessed as, like, I just obsessed on it. I was living at that guy's house, and mm. he had all these records, and... Uh, He'd lived through that whole Willie thing that that had just happened in that town. Yeah, those were my main rides. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 
It's interesting. You know, I've always kind of wondered, um, you were a Texas guy and then you wound up in Nashville, but I think you were in Memphis kind of at the time that your career started blowing up. What, what drew you to Memphis? Okay. So my dad was in construction in Memphis and uh, he did not like this, this music thing, but he kind of tried to be supportive and, um, and that's all I would talk about. And so um, I had this uh, sort of a long story, but this record store that, that knew that I had got bit by the songwriting bug, and I would just go in there and give them 20 bucks, and they'd give me another one, you know, because they, they already knew the, the, the well I was going into. And so one day, this guy Bobby, I, I went and I guess I had 40 bucks, and he gave me Keith Sykes, two Keith Sykes records. And um, I just devoured those records and talked about Key Sykes for a few months and um, then moved on probably to, you know, Guy Clark or something. These guys were just giving me an education. But my dad was working in construction, and he called me from a bar, and he said... um, Man, didn't isn't this guy isn't Keith Sykes one of your guys? And I said, yeah. And he said, man, okay. Well, this chick that's bartending, her sister is married to him. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. He goes, I'm gonna ask her if uh, you can uh, bring send him a song. And so I sent him a song, and he called me, told me it was good. And that I had potential. Just happened to be the same week that this girl had broke up with me. So I thought, fuck it. I just drove right to his house. Just drove right there. His joke is, before before I finished reading the letter, I was at his house. But he said, <laughs> you have potential. And I just drove to his house. I had this old saber. And I, I showed up, and he, he didn't know what I looked like, but um, he was tipsy the day I got there. And so he... He just invited me in and, and kind of played me that record, that first record that I loved so much, and then took me under his wing. He he said that uh, I rhymed good. Sometimes it was a little corny, um, and and then I just you, you don't really have any really. He's like, yes, I need to learn to be a musician and learn time and tempo. He taught me what talking blues was. I had two really good mentors. One was just all about lyrics, and the other was not not about lyrics. He wrote amazing lyrics, but he he was really into melody and and groove and tempo and 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 uh, you know the harder just harder stuff. You know. Yeah. You know, looking at that songs for the Daily Planet album, you you got two songs that were actually covered by prominent artists at the time. You had Gary Allen uh, cutting "All Right Guy," and then uh, Mark Chestnut covered "Trouble." And, you know, for a lot of writers, that would kind of be the dream, having known name artists recording your songs. But, you know, you you seem to have this sort of, you know, straight arrow approach just to to doing your own artistry. Did you ever consider writing for other artists and kind of shifting that way? Or did you always just want to kind of do it yourself? Yeah, no, it was never. uh, And that just as soon as I became a troubadour from the hat on the ground, to then in, eventually into the club. It was just my way. That was just the way I was going to live. Mm-hmm. 
And when I first got here, I remember Keith kind of saying, well, you know, it's so much fun. Or like, you stay home, you make more money. And I'm like, my main, I'm here to travel more than anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, even, I, even maybe even more than want to, I mean, I can play and sing all day for myself. Um, but I, I, I wanted to travel. I wanted to live out. I wanted to be like Ramblin' Jack Elliott. That was what I was drawn toward. Hmm. And I got the, and then I would get those cuts, though, you know, and I still get some. Tom Jones just did one of my songs. Oh, wow. Which one did he do? The Talking Reality Television Blues. Really? It sounds like Radiohead or something. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's so strange. Yeah. And Garth Brooks did All Right Guy, but it never came out, but I haven't. Yeah. I like it when they do it, but I don't pursue that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you, um, there's a song, Can't Complain, from your 1998 album, Viva Satellite. All I wanted was one chance to let freedom ring. They said I had to get a permit, tags and everything. I never made it through the red tape. I got this paper hat. Got a job working weekdays. You want fries with that? I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to gain. It's like a one-way ticket to cruising that passing lane. I can't complain. You're so good at delivering songs that are funny. That kind of make you they make you laugh, but they're not, uh, you know, they're not Ray Stevens funny. They're, (laughs) you know, they're not corny. They're not, you're not hamming it up, but you, you have this great ability to kind of toss out a line almost as a throwaway. That's like a great little mini punchline in the middle of the song. Um, and I'd like to get your thoughts as a writer on kind of perfecting that craft of knowing how to be, funny and and how to to put kind of a, a clever type of humor in songs versus like a ham-fisted trying to to you know make everybody belly laugh type of thing yeah i, I appreciate that yeah you know i never have um laughed at like boob stuff or, or fart stuff you know this right. never brought me and then the thing so that just doesn't, I just don't do that, you know, and I don't laugh when other people do it. But when I made up my first songs, I went to the open mic. When I was singing in my own bar, the restaurant I worked at, I just got up there and sang my song. But when, um, um, but when I, when I, um, got up there at that open mic thing, I just, I guess, panicked and <laughs> and and I, I sort of went into this fight or flight, you know? Right. And, like, I remember I got mugged one time, which is full fight or flight. I turned this alley corner, and these two guys, and this one guy hit me in the face, and I tried to joke my way out of it. Hmm. Like, it, it, and I felt, I felt like, 
that was the same thing that happened when I first got up there. Hmm. Interesting. And and it kind of like it kind of and 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 yeah, it was kind of like people were like, "You should do that, eat more." And I was like, it's, "I'm just uh, panicking." <laughs> right, right. And then uh, and then my the, that Kent, who was my mentor, he explained to me who uh, Ramblin Jack Elliot was, and then Alice's restaurant, which I'd known, but. My my mentor guy was like, "See, listen to this song. Let's a thing. Yeah. The thing you're doing is a thing." Hmm. And then there's a song Ramblin' Jack Elliott does called Nine Twelve Greens," which is what Arlo was really copying. We're not copying, but being, you know. And that's a that's like the beginning of the that Nine Twelve Greens is is sort of the first time somebody does like what I do. Mm. or creates that job. Mm. Woody Guthrie was Ramblin' Jack's mentor, but Woody Guthrie, folk wasn't the thing that you could tour. You didn't tour and play clubs. You played at a political rally, or you, you opened for the senator, or you uh, or you busked on the street, or you played at a house party. But, there, but Woody Guthrie didn't do shows. Right. Ramblin' Jack Elliott did shows. Mm. And John Lee Hooker... There was a couple of cats in the early 60s that paved this tour, that the route that I'm still on, that yeah. that everybody's still on. But that Birchmere, I mean, what town are you guys in? The El Rey Theater, yeah. you know? Yeah, right, right. That, the people who play there everywhere. That's like, and Ramblin', Ramblin Jack is, um, like, probably the probably who I copy the most or the person I'm most influenced by. Hmm. You know, you've got a guy like yourself who has traveled all around and done your share of hitchhiking and found yourself, you know, mugged in an alley. I mean, you've got <laughs> plenty of stories to write from, um, but then you've got a song like Double Wide Blues where you kind of take on the persona of a character. Metallica song blasting out from two trailers down. It's them cut-off T-shirt and nunchuck kids coming around. Tonight they'll get drunk, try to get laid, end up in a fight out behind the arcade. You know one of them little shits broke my window last spring. I told his mama she didn't do anything. She works two jobs, he runs loose. got a rich background to draw from but then w when you begin to take on characters the, you know the sky's the limit so do you enjoy kind of finding you know personas and characters to inhabit with your songs yeah i, I do like randy newman did that in the in the one you're talking about it's funny because i have a song called moondog's tavern and i made that up for the owner of moondog's tavern which was not a real bar at all it was a place in a garage uh it was like a speakeasy in, hmm. in this weird part of, you, you got to go to Memphis to really understand. And um, But I went there in the afternoons, and one day I came out and I was singing this song, Moondog's Tavern, and he laughed, and then he found out the label wanted the song. And he was like, damn. And then he was <laughs> like, man, this got like one verse, and you don't talk about anyone. 
And then he started getting all pissy about it because he, he was like, that song about me sucks. <laughs> so he was. He said, you didn't talk about anybody. So I, so I did Double White Blues. I went out, to, I was at his bar, and I made up Double White Blues to, to, so I could fix it or whatever. Huh. That was my way of... And then that way I got to mention everybody. Right. So in a way, I take on a character... But um, but all the other characters are are cats I I knew. Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, there's obviously being a songwriter is a lot about observation and you know being able to translate those observations in a relatable way um, that that moves people, whether it moves them to you know to laugh or you know whether it moves them to to think or or to you know cry or, or whatever it is. Um, but also a big part of a songwriter is to, to make people feel good, you know, and, and I look at a song like beer run, um, off 2002's new connection, which is just a fun song, but it's also, you know, it's deceptively fun. It's clever. Like the rhythmic pattern and the rhyming pattern. It's, it's really well constructed. B double E double R U N beer run. B double E double R U N beer run. All we need is a ten and a fiver, a car and a key and a sober driver. B double E double R U M beer run. A couple of frat guys from Abilene drove out all night to see Robert Earl Keen at the K Pigs. Wine and soiree dance, wore baseball caps, khaki pants. They wanted cigs, so to save some money, they got one off a hippie that smelled kind of funny. And the next thing they knew, they was both really hungry. But I would imagine that a song like that comes out of a lot of years of getting up just you and a guitar and playing for a crowd um, because you you get a chance to kind of test things and it's a very immediate sort of how does the crowd respond to this um, I'd like to hear a little bit of your thoughts on because you do perform just solo acoustic so often uh, how the immediacy of that and the immediacy of crowd response kind of informs your approach to the craft of writing because yeah, I don't try stuff out really you know like I, if I have it I'll wait till the record's out I think I've played like two two of the songs I don't know why for some reason I sort of save it so they don't know a lot of times if I play it alone and everybody gets to hear it then it doesn't matter how I record it they don't like it hmm. I did it you know like so I I tried like the the Handsome John song I've been doing that on the show, just me and the piano, because on the record, it's just me and the piano. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I don't even know why, what would make me overthink it that far, just smoking <laughs> grass, I guess. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think of, sometimes I think more of like, I like it when they sing. All Right Guy was the first song. That, and I didn't really know what melodies were at the time. I just thought they were chord changes. And then when I said, like, and I still don't know why, uh, da, 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 da. it's like you almost have, it's like begging to be sung, you know.
We lost you. Uh, what's this? I got the phone died. This okay. is like a phone, a house phone. Oh, well, you still got a landline. Nice. Yeah, I don't have a cell phone. Really? Yeah. Well, I can't get into it. I'm I'm just going to kind of go out and, and like it's still the 90s. Right. <laughs> nice, nice. I That's like where it. I'm from. Nice. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you about uh, play a train song. I mean, I'm I'm assuming that's not about the band Train. <laughs> no, yeah. Sometimes when people say yell the train song, I'm like like props of Jupiter. <laughs> he laughed a little bit louder as he the yeller about the band play a train song. Man, this is, this is why we called you. you know. <laughs> um, that song is really close from when East Nashville, like it's always been where you, you, if you come here to be a writer or a singer, you usually get off the bus and you go to East Nashville. That uh, Traditionally, that's been uh, affordable. And then there was a tornado that knocked it out and and made it so everybody got insurance and got to fix up their houses. And I don't know, I think it was also at that time there was this thing called Americana, or you could have in those days just called it unsuccessful country music. (laughs) But not so unsuccessful that it would be better to just go get a job. And there was a ton of us. I was one of them, like... All right, well, I'm not the biggest singer in the world, but I sure make more money doing this than any other fucking thing I could think of. <laughs> and it's fun, and I get to travel. And I think all there was a whole ton of people that were living that life, and they were all kind of congregated in this one part of town. And it's just this whole neighborhood full of people who don't work during the day at all, and mostly don't work until the weekend, and that's in another town. Yeah. Or they or they work for two months and then they come home and sit. So like if I if I was home I would just get up and walk to the bar and all the other songwriters would be there. Everybody'd be drinking by nine in the morning. And there'd be card games and it just it oh my my point was too, I'm sorry, was it started it was this the first place was this place called the Radio Cafe and the sound man there uh was Skip Litz and he would go to all the bars at night and walk into all the live music bars and yell, play a fucking train song. <laughs> and it was like an inside joke in the neighborhood where the band would stop whatever they were doing and do it. And tourists would freak out and he'd come <laughs> off like Santa Claus. And he was like a weed dealer. He'd, he'd, he'd tour managed uh, uh, Dr. Hook. And then he got stomach cancer. And he was like the clown prince of the town he was like the, the unofficial mayor hmm. all the parties were at his house yeah and um and he's the one he's the one that made it so everyone knew that everyone like everybody met everybody through him hmm. and he was the one that told everybody that something was happening and I, it started down there at that three crow at the at the 
radio. And then um, he he found out he had stomach cancer, and he told he wanted to go on the road. He was like, "Can, can I just come with you?" He asked me if he could come with me uh, to do one last tour, and uh, we went out for maybe like three months, and then we were going to go to West Virginia. And I just hadn't heard from him. I hadn't heard from him. So go go went over there, and uh, he was on his couch. He was he had a smile on his face, and he was watching TV. But when I touched him, he was freezing. Mm. And um, I called the police, and then just like almost instantly, I um, that song sort of did itself. In, in fact, that's more than any time in my life. Like, there's teachers like my friend Kent that would say, you work on your craft and you work on your craft and you just work on it all the time so you're ready that day when your life really shows up. Huh. And and uh, that's a good example of, like, of, like, I'd been practicing writing songs for a really long time and then one day a really dear friend of mine passed away and the really... Um, you know, it almost doesn't sound true, hmm. but it is. And wow. And uh, I, I guess that's like you get lucky. I always thought of it as I got really lucky. A lot of people made up um, songs for him. and uh, But for some reason, I always felt like mine was the one that he worked on. Hmm. He never, everybody in the neighborhood was a songwriter, and he used to joke that he was a song. Huh. And, and, and he was. Everyone knew he was. Wow. He was a character. Wow, wow. That's amazing. You know, that Play a Train song was on your uh, 2004 East Nashville Skyline record. Um, I want to ask you about another song on that record, Conservative Christian, Right Wing Republican, Straight White American Males. Um, that song, and, and then on the follow-up record, The Devil You Know, um, you had a song called You Got Away With It, which was about the uh, the Bush election and your material kind of in that period uh like with the peace square ep that came out in 2008 you started to get more explicit in terms of talking about social issues and and political issues i'm curious if as a writer um your views were kind of evolving in a way that you wanted to write about or if you had felt like you needed to kind of wait until a certain point in your career until you did start writing more explicitly about some of those type of issues. Oh, yeah, cool. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I, I feel like by the time, like when I made up my first record, I had like 200 songs to pick 14 from. And then and then that, that kept going, that kept going, and then by about the sixth this, after the fifth record, I really just didn't have any songs anymore, and I, I almost would say this apologetically to to the people that listen to me, which is like, I need ten songs more than anything. I need ten songs, hmm. or I can't I can't turn my lights on. That's how the label gives me my money. They don't give me money for eight or seven, ten, and. And I don't, I don't get to choose what they're about, you know. And I would so much rather, um, I mean, I, I would probably prefer not to, to sing about politics in a way that makes people mad. Um, but I don't really get to choose what songs come for me. Mm-hmm. I tell people early in the show, 
I'm I'm not I'm not sharing my opinions with you because they're smart or because I think you should hear them. I share them because they rhyme. The main trick is rhyming. As anything, if you can get a melody that and rhyme some thoughts that you feel, man, take it to work and see if it see if it shows up. Hmm. And then if it does, it's in my troubadour box, you know. Which to me is I just need as many little four minute things like I feel more like a busker or a troubadour. And I just uh if it if it's as many songs I can get in my pack I need. I need them all. Hmm. And then of course if I'm making records too I also need them all. Yeah. But I don't think I'm I don't think three chords makes people smart. <laughs> right. And and I, I also don't mind like people are surprised when they hear me say I like Toby Keith or the people like I don't mind at all when sort of right leaning singers throw that into the mix. Why not? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the life of this podcast, um, you know, we've we've had our highs and lows, and one one of the real highs. I remember one of the first guests that we got, and we just got really excited about, and we're like, "Oh, this this is working. This is great." Was when we booked Loretta Lynn. Um, we just couldn't believe we were going to get a chance to talk to her. And now I'm wondering, what must it have been like to actually write with her? I'm talking, of course, about the song "Don't Tempt Me, Baby." Don't tempt me, baby. And she was just sitting over there, and I, I like, 
And then there was letters she wrote to, like, Chet Atkins and stuff. I'm like, Loretta, I'm weeping over here. And, um, and then we wrote that song. But the only way she can get a man is still I don't know if I should tell you this or not And then ever since then, she's just been really sweet to me. Hmm. Uh, I saw her that night at some, there was some sort of trophy show that I was supposed to go to, but I hadn't been in bed in fucking a week, and I shouldn't have gone. I think I got in trouble on TV or something, but uh, <laughs> she was there. She, I was, If she hadn't been there, I probably would have... Um, I know she sort of she just she just kind of was there with me, you know. Yeah, yeah. If if she hadn't been standing there next to me, I might not have been forgiven for some some of the <laughs> shit I did that night. <laughs> right. Um, well, talking about uh, legends, um, in 2019 you released uh, a record called Cash Cabin Sessions Volume Three, which you recorded at Johnny Cash's uh, cabin studio. I think. Uh, I think Talking Reality Television Blues is on there, which is a cover of a Tom Jones song that you did. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, talk a little bit about the experience of just being in that uh, in that space uh, and and what kind of inspiration you drew just from you know where you chose to make the record. It started with Loretta and I had that song "Everything It Takes." And she was going to sing it with Elvis Costello. And she was recording at the Cash Cabin. And I want to say I'd been there once with Bobby Bear to do A Boy Named Sue. And so I'd been there, and I met John Carter. And then so this was my second time to get to go out there, and it was for Loretta. And and she sang my song. And then... um, and I was, and then like that night, I had a dream that I woke up on the floor there, and then I kept having these, I kept having this dream that I would, that I was asleep on the floor in this little cabin, behind Johnny Cash's house, and um, and then I started having the dream where I would wake up on the floor and Johnny Cash would be standing there. He'd be like saying, kicking me to be awake. Hmm. And I, you know, I, I remember I was in a jam band at the time, and we were reading lots of acid. And um, the um, and then I had the um, the last time I had the dream, Johnny Cash said, "You're missing it," and he pointed to this corner of this of the studio. And so Dave Schools is the uh, widespread panic. He was the leader of the hardworking Americans, and we were having a practice. And he was like, it's a song. I think it's, I think it's a song he's talking about. So he called the cabin and booked it so we could all stay overnight out there. And um, we all took a bunch of acid out there. And uh, I, just, I went and I made up a song called Just Like Overnight. And just walking around in the woods looking for it, you know, like 50 years old, tripping, looking in the woods for a 
song. No, no parent is hoping that's what happens to the kid. <laughs> but it would work, and it did work, and I got that that one song. But then uh, John Carter came down and said, um, "What, what, um, what?" T- he wanted to know about this whole dream, and so I, I said he. He pointed over in this corner and said, I'm missing it. So me and Dave and John Carter are all looking around that corner for something. And then John Carter says, do you think this place is haunted? And I said, no, you know. And he said, Loretta Lynn thinks it's haunted. And then he told me this story. He said when she records out there, she parks her tour bus right next to the cabin. So, like, if he looks out his bedroom window, he can see her. Uh, and uh, he said about three in the morning he heard this country music like modern, loud, normal old, you know, normal old country hits of of the very day and he said it woke him up it was so loud and he looked out the window and she was dancing like a teenager, you know Hmm. and he he said I wonder if she she thinks she's dancing with my dad and and he said the next morning he asked her, and she said, that's exactly why I was dancing with John Carter. And that doesn't surprise me. She's a, she's, that, that doesn't surprise me, you know. Yeah. Not that she danced or any of that stuff. And then uh, he said she did that again that next night. Hmm. And then and we're all standing there in that corner. I was like, John, I think that this is, we're supposed to make up this song. Maybe this song is what we're missing. Wow. That's and incredible. so... We made up that song. When the red man goes dancing with the ghost of Johnny Cash, Father Time takes forever and to make it look like lightning lightning flash. Violin boy and two fiddles, two iconic symbols crash. When the red man goes dancing with the ghost of Johnny Cash. You know, I want to come back around to the new album and ask you about something that, that I saw in the liner notes, um, the written notes there for the song, The Get Together. And it says this, it says, I decided a few years ago that I was going to try to stop making up songs because I had come to the realization that there wasn't anything to say. But upon further meditation, I decided this was precisely the reason why I should keep doing it. As soon as I realized there was no point in doing what I was doing, I felt like I could finally start in earnest. I feel like that quote is one that I want to read about five or six times in a row and then go meditate on it myself. <laughs> or I could just ask you to elaborate a bit and take me deeper into that sentiment. Yeah, that's that's a hard that's a hard one to discuss, but it, or it's hard to that's a harder one uh, to to convey. Um, but I I just don't have I don't have goals or anything like that. Hmm. Like almost the the putting aside the need to to try to write songs almost opens up a channel that makes it easier to to do it. Is is that kind of what you're saying? Um, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe more like um, I felt like I I started to see the alphabet as like as a hoax, like a flim flam, like a shell game, and then. I started saying so. Uh, no, no real set of words in a row really means stuff. Hmm. It's just, uh, and, and the, the more I, the more I, 
don't think that the the the, the alphabet with the the, the talking and, and saying words is the thing. I think I don't think that's the way to communicate. And I feel like the more I understand that that's not a way to communicate with others, uh, the more I can the more I can come at it with a free spirit as almost like a, the more I, the less important it feels. And uh, that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Hmm. I'm not, I, I, the world doesn't need songs, you know. Hmm, yeah. And you, you want to have your, your mind really blown about the alphabet. I just read somewhere the other day that the alphabet never had to be in that order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alphabetical order is completely random. (laughs) (laughs) But I do like my favorite philosopher stopped talking late in life. I think good poets shut up. That's the point. Mm -hmm. I I would hope. And I'd like to be one of those. I'd like to, you know, get, you're trying to get the last word. I I would like to get that someday. My main, uh, my main guy that I look up to is stop talking at the end of his life and just laughed mostly. I could see going that way because I've said a lot. Hmm. Hmm. I've talked a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, as a songwriter, I think your your word play is very clever. I mean, it seems to just come naturally to you, and you, yes, you've put plenty of, of words out there, but I also feel like in recent years I've seen... Um, more of a focus on experimentation in terms of the the musicality of what you do. And I think, you know, the same guy who can stand there with an acoustic guitar and entertain a crowd can make a, a hard-rocking album like 2016's East Side Bulldog. Um, and then for the new record, First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder, you have talked about the vision for the sound, this the sonic uh feel of the album of being uh, funkin' back and busking up front. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little more about um, how you came to that and, and the inspiration for pursuing a particular sonic aesthetic for the record. Oh, man, thank you. That's, uh, I'll tell you, the, the Agnostic Hymns and Stoner Fables was when I first started wanting to understand what that, that, that was the when I first started going for that. Hmm. And uh, I, the first thing I had to learn was to, to uh, was going to have to be learn how to talk drums. Kind of had to learn to play drums. Hmm. And then, um, in fact, I, I and then I felt stuck after that agnostic thing. I knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't know how to do it or how to tell other people to do it. And so I started. I took a lesson. Um, I, I one of the things I did was I went to David's schools in California and I gave him 18 of my songs and he put a band together and rearranged them uh, unrecognizable to me. Huh. And I wanted to, and then, then he showed me how he did it. And, um, I, and then, then him and I started getting into this notion that we would have a band and that, and also I felt like I felt stuck at that time. And I did this, uh, you, I can only play Nashville once. I play the rhyme, and, and then, then I can't play for six months before or after because of the contract. Right. But I have a band called the Eastside Bulldogs, 
and we can play whenever, and no one knows I'm in it. And uh, that was the first place, like, I needed a break from making music, and I needed a break from songwriting, but I also wanted to, I didn't want to stop, I wanted to to learn more about it, so I needed a break from doing my my day job, or my, my what they call a career. So I went and made, like, the Bulldogs, that sounds like, that's what Portland, Oregon bands sound like. Right. And, and a lot of the background vocals and call and response and all that is what I was playing with that, that I ended up using on this new one. And then on the hardworking Americans, that was the deepest musical lesson of my life, mostly melody and harmony and tempo. And then with Dwayne the Trucks, the drummer, I started to learn to understand what I had been trying to ask for and um, learn like they I didn't even play the guitar in that band because I I had to work hard just to like if I didn't sing in perfect fucking tempo they'd all look at me like I was a jerk <laughs> right that right. band was really good and I it was all I could do to sing exactly in the right spots hmm. but I learned how to play lead I learned how to play bass and I learned how to uh, sing, sing uh, and sing arm. Like, so on this album, I got to play everything. Because in that band, I learned to play banjo and uh, learned to, to, to um, I guess, uh, uh, you know, play better. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I noticed just from the, the credits that Robbie... Crowell does the, a lot of the drums and percussion, and then it's like you're playing virtually everything. It would seem that all was a folly as he focused more and more, exploring the nature of being until he came to its very core. And it was there he became enlightened, and it was then he began to sob. He said, Oh shit. I quit my job. Is everybody ready for the get together? Um, a guy who is sort of known for standing up with an acoustic guitar is almost always kind of known as a as a words guy, and you really seem to have reached this point where you're far more interested in exploring sonics than than language. Yeah, I am actually. Yeah, that's true. I remember being the hardworking Americans thinking that the drummer is the one doing all the talking. In the real, um, at the at the bottom of what's going on, you know, uh, musically, I think really the the front guy is the drummer, but it's it's all kind of tied around. It's kind of a parlor trick, but it also has a lot of heart. It's like if it doesn't have heart or soul, it doesn't work. So yeah. in that way, it's not a parlor trick. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. Well, the new record, uh, First Agnostic, Church of Hope and Wonder, very cool stuff. I have been a fan of yours since uh, that time in 1994 when I got my dad's car and listened to the uh, the CD of, of your first record. So it's cool oh, to see how you, you have you know continued to explore uh, new things, and uh, I am just uh, a, a huge admirer of, of what you do. So it's been a, a true pleasure for us to speak with you, Todd, and, and thank well, you for your thanks, time. Thanks, man. Thanks for asking me all those questions. I'll see you out in California. Thanks for listening. 
We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.